Welcome to Encounter Church. Hello, uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're glad you're here today. And if, like Jason said earlier, if this is your first time here um, physically or even electronically, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. We're in the midst of a series called How to Beat the Odds, and the whole essence of this series this month and next month is really geared around practical how-tos. That for many of us in life, we struggle with attention. We want to be in a place in life that um, we seem to, to not be able to get to. That the natural tendency for humans is to drift towards the average. And most of us want more than just the average relationship. We want more than just the average relationship with our parents, relationship with a significant other. We want more than just average financial security. We, we, we hunger for a, to be in a place that for many of us it seems so unattainable. And this series through the course of this month and next month is built around how do we begin to take practical steps um, and to beat the odds that sometimes feel like they're stacked against us. And uh, yesterday, I, I did one of those things. I had a bucket list kind of item that I kind of chipped off, and you're probably about to judge me, but it's okay. It's maybe more like a small beach pail item, not so much a bucket list, but you have your dreams, I have mine. Um, yesterday, my family and I, we went to a corn maze, right? And um, if you've never been to a corn maze, yeah, um, and so a corn maze, and that was one of these, in my mind, I don't know why, I was like, oh, corn maze would be so awesome, it was like almost this romantic idea of like roaming around this six acre cornfield with no idea where you are, and so we walk into it, and there's about 10 different stations you have to make it to, and I somehow ended up at last the entire time. The entire time in the corn maze, I was in the back, and our five-year-old daughter was in the front guiding us, which... It's helpful because she's part homing pigeon, which helped us out, quite honestly, because I am 0% homing pigeon. She's at least about 50 to 60% homing pigeon. And so we're wandering around, and like the first maybe 15, 20 minutes, it's fine. Like, man, this is, I'm in a corn maze. This is like a lifelong dream achieved in my 30s. I'm winning today. And about 30 minutes in, around like the fifth post, which is like halfway, it's like, wow, we're really doing this. Like, this is awesome. Around like six and seven, I start to shift internally. Um, my like excitement starts to kind of give way to exasperation because, you know, we're at six and now we've seen seven one time, two times, three times. After wandering for 15 minutes, we're, oh, there's seven again. Oh, there's seven Again, and at this point, we're in a part of the corn maze where they haven't necessarily trimmed it. I don't know if you trim corn bushes or whatever those things are called, but they hadn't trimmed them if you're supposed to. And so now we're walking through and I'm constantly having like these large corn leaves, right? Waving up and kind of brushing up against my face and my skin. And I'm allergic to everything except the, actually my skin test says I'm not allergic to tobacco, um, cotton, and K-Pock, right? That was the only three things on my like allergen test that I did not come back in positive. I'm pretty sure if corn had been on there, I was allergic to it because at this point I'm starting to itch. And my face is starting to form these little red tiny marks where everywhere the corn touches and I'm really hot and I'm sweaty and I'm wearing pants and I start to get miserable. And I'm like, I'm never getting out of this corn maze. Ever. Like, my daughter's going to turn 18. I'm still going to be walking around finding number seven. And I started thinking about this message and this passage from the day and I realized that, you know what? While that corn maze 
um, was kind of silly. And yes, I did eventually make it out. A hot, sweaty, itchy mess. Um, reality is that for many of us, we, we can connect to that moment of seeing seven again and again and again and again. That we can feel stuck and feel like we're just walking in circles. Repeating, 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 and never beating the odds that are stacked against us. That it's year seven of your marriage, but it still feels like the contentious first year. Just played out over and over again. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're stuck? And you keep seeing the same milepost over and over and over again, and you're not getting out. What do you do in that moment? And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to jump to a story, and I want to journey through that story the same way that our family journeyed through the corn maze. Because embedded in this story, I think, is some really helpful insights for us. Some really helpful direction. Because sometimes, when you find yourself in the pit, it's good to ask questions how you got there in the first place. And sometimes it's good to go back to the beginning and retrace your steps when you keep getting lost. If uh, you have the Encounter Church app, you'll find that this has already been loaded for you in the message notes section. If you click on that, everything you're going to need for today's uh, message is already there for you. And uh, I'm going to read through sections of it today. And this is a longer passage than I normally do. Um, normally, there's so much contained in just a few simple verses that um, I could spend 20 to 30 minutes. Last week, I had two verses, and it was the entire 30 minutes. So um, if you were here last week, don't extrapolate the math. Okay, so there's 20 verses. It's not going to be um, until you're, yeah, it's not going to be at whole seven where you're just wandering around over and over again. I'm going to read through it pretty quickly, but I want, I want you to get the essence of this story because it's really helpful to frame and to set the tension that we're going to find our character, this individual finds himself in. The main focal point of this passage today in Genesis 37 is a man named Joseph. And we're introduced to Joseph and a turning point in his life and a defining moment in his life. And the book of Genesis, if you maybe are new to the Christian faith or you're exploring Christian faith, the book of Genesis is the first book in the Christian and the Jewish um, scriptures. It's the very beginning of both storylines because Christianity is, sees itself as the fulfillment of the promises in the Jewish faith, of the promised land and the promised one. That those that fulfillment plays out in Christianity. And so both begin with the same kind of overarching birth narrative of the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, towards the end, um, the, kind of the last 15 chapters of the book of Genesis is dedicated to this character named Joseph. Joseph is an interesting guy whose life is incredibly admirable, is a, is a life worth reading. And I would encourage you, if, you're, if you've really never read the Bible before, the book of um, this section of the book of Genesis, Joseph, is a, an inspirational story. It's an incredible story of a man who overcomes odds and what God does in the midst of his life. But what I want to do is start with the turning point. So Genesis 37, verse 12 we, we find the story beginning this way. Now his brothers, who are, um, there's 11 of them, 10 of them, specifically, he's the 11th. These 10 brothers are shepherds. The family business is shepherding. And they, typically, because of the way shepherd industry works, they are nomads. They roam. 
Whenever the flock exhausts the grass and the, the water in a certain area, they move to the next area. And so what happens is the brothers have gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem, a town nearby. And Israel, who also goes by the name of Jacob, says to Joseph, his youngest son, as you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So this is kind of the original text message, okay? There's not a text messaging phone system back in the day. And so the way that the father is checking in on the sons, making sure they have everything as they roam through, is he sends his youngest son to go get word from them. How's everything going? How's the sheep? What's going on? This is, this is old school text message. So he sends his son out to Shechem, and he says that he's sent off from the Valley of Hebron. And we're getting some background, some location spots, because this gives us an insight to what we're about to read. It says, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? And... The man responds, they have moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Just stop there. So the reason the, the writer is giving us this background of all these different locations is because for the original Jewish reader, this would have meant a lot. This would have given them a little bit of insight from the get-go of the story. You and I don't have a Google Maps image in our head of Dothan, Shechem, and the Valley of Hebron, right? That's not something that you and I tend to navigate to regularly. You probably haven't told Siri to navigate you to Shechem this week or ever. But for this world and this life, what, what's happening is we're told where they start because Dothan... Like Joseph is looking for his brothers, and they use this word, it says that he's wandering. And that word in the original Hebrew literally meant lost. Like he was so completely at loss to find them. That at this point, he's just wandering around this whole region because he can't figure out where they are. And then a man sees him and says, oh, they're in Dothan. Now here's what's interesting. Dothan is six days journey from where Joseph started from. It takes six days to get there. And what we see Joseph do is not turn around and go back home and say message, message failure, right? Like, Dad, this thing didn't work out. Sorry, it didn't play out. You're going to have to send another one or find someone else a little bit stronger. That's a six days journey. I couldn't do it. What we find is Joseph, because of his love for his father, because of his determination, because he was given something to do and his responsibility, he goes and travels for six whole days. He didn't leave home with a backpack full of food. There is not McDonald's or fast food restaurants to stop on the way. He sets out on a really difficult journey. Why? Because his father said, go find your brothers and send word back to me. This is the quality and the character of who this kid is. And we find that in the introduction because what happens in verse 18 is all of a sudden the soundtrack of the story shifts. And it says, but they saw him in the distance. And before, they reached, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And this is like the point, if this was a television show, it goes to commercial break. Because you don't imagine, verse 17, diligent son traveling six days to find his brothers with verse 18 being, and they saw him and they plotted to kill him. It should be, they saw him and they said, hey Joseph, our bad, we should have sent another message back to you saying, hey, we traveled six days away. Instead they say, no, this is our moment, no one will know, let's kill him. And that's the setup for the story. And then we continue. 
What we find in verse 19 is that there's this scheme that begins to emerge, right? They begin to plot, and here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue them, rescue him from their hands. He says, well, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Let's throw him here in the cistern and don't lay a hand. Let's just pull a mean prank. Let's just throw him into a pit he can't get out of. Reuben said this because he wanted to rescue him and take him back to his father. Now, Reuben sounds noble, but reality is, is the backstory is Reuben has made some really foolish decisions recently. And his dad's not a big fan of Reuben. And Reuben's trying to, to kind of win, win his father's good side. So Reuben's scheming, his brothers are scheming, they're all scheming. So when Joseph gets to them, it says they stripped him of his robe, this ornament robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. This is why they saw him, because what he is wearing is flashy and is able to be seen from a distance. So they throw him in the cistern, and the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. This is helpful because we, we live in a day and age of interstate and commerce. So the original 18-wheeler Mack truck, right, tractor-trailer, was the camel. That was the original tractor-trailer. Camels would travel incredibly long distances through the deserts with very little need, water or food-wise. And so these camels would oftentimes be loaded with spices and myrrh, and they would go from... From the Asian continent, they would travel through the desert into the African or European continent. This was the, the bridge where they happened to be. So they, are, they look up after they sit down at the rest area to eat, and they notice that some, some camels are coming. And this is a big caravan of camels. This is the original transport system, truck system, like this is it. And all of a sudden, it says that an idea pops in their head. They're like, come. Well, what if... What do we gain if we just kill him? How about we, we sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him after all? He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Which is almost laughable in verse 27, right? That like, oh, he is our brother. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we should just sell him. These are the worst brothers ever, right? Let's just acknowledge that. They're, 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 they're sitting down to eat while their brother is stuck in a pit screaming and crying out for help. And they are having a conversation about how good they are as brothers. And brothers don't kill each other, they sell each other. And you think your children fight. Right? I mean, imagine. And so, verse 28, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him into Egypt. So 20 shekels of silver, um, because that's not what you and I pay when we go to restaurants or shopping, right? That, that may not give you... So let me help you frame that. Um, for someone who was poor, this is about two years worth of salary. Now, that may sound like a lot of money, but there was a huge, similar to the day, there was a huge wage discrepancy between the lowest and the highest. So in modern money... When you take the amount that they sold him for and you split it among the ten brothers who have reasoned together to form this plan, what you're talking about is little more than three grand in today's money. So for $3,000 a piece, they sold their brother. And not just, not just that they sell their brother, they scheme to deceive their father. They fake his death 
for $3,000. Now, what you don't know about them is that this family, the fact that they had to travel so much distance to take care of their flock gives you an indication of how large their flock was in the first place. The fact that they could, with by bringing their animals into a region, completely eradicate any of the food and water source gives you an indication of how wealthy they were because of how many animals they already had. $3,000 was a drop in the bucket in what they got paid. This wasn't even about money, even though the money helped. This was deeper than that. It was malicious. And this is the point I want to hit stop because this is the point that I think Joseph speaks beyond his local context. Joseph's sitting there. Imagine, you set out because your dad gives you something to do. You find your brothers, and instead, I mean, six days to find them, to give them a message. And what happens? They grab you, they throw you in a deep hole, you cry out, they ignore you. And then you see a rope thrown in, you're you crawl out thinking maybe this is the worst practical joke ever thrown by any set of brothers. Only to be jumped by these people that you've never met. Tied up and put on the back of a camel. And taken to a land where you didn't even know the language. Imagine. You're 13 years old and this is what happens to you. You're 10 years old and this is what happens to you. Because we know he's somewhere in this like early range. It's heartbreaking. And I think he's sitting there and he's asking the question that many of us have asked before. How in the world did I get here? How did this happen? I just set out to do something that I thought I was supposed to do. And now my entire world has fallen apart. Now my relationship is not what I thought it was the day I said yes. Or what I thought I had with my kids has just completely fallen apart. Or the job that I thought was going to be perfect is constantly pressing in on me. What do you do? Now, this text is awesome. Because there's so much in it that I've run through. It reminds me, in fact, of uh, January 13, 2012. Um, if you'd happened to have been watching the news that day, you would have heard about the Costa Concordia. This cruise ship in Italy, that as it was um, kind of skirting the edges of some islands in some Italian cities, something tragic happens. It runs up on a sandbar, a rock rips into it, and it causes the ship to flip over. And if you watch the news that day, I'm sure you remember this image, right? 4,000 people, 4,000 people were on this boat. Maritime law dictates that a cruise ship, when it crashes, is supposed to be able to evacuate in 30 minutes. That's the defining kind of code guideline. It took six hours for that ship to evacuate, and in the process, 32 people lost their lives. It was a modern-day disaster. In a day and age where this stuff shouldn't have happened, and people even compared it to that distant tragedy called the Titanic. Because right off the coast of Italy, 32 people lost their life. Because, ironically, not of something on the surface, but something beneath the surface that the captain didn't see. Because he was being foolish, because he was way too close, he didn't realize that that piece of sandbar and rock sitting in front of that ship extended underneath the water. And the Costa Concordia, the Costa Concordia, I think is a, is a great living picture of what 
was going on in Joseph's life in this moment. That part of the reason he was in that pit, the answer to how did he get here, had a lot to do with what was beneath the surface of his family, not what was on the surface of his family. In fact, this is a better way of displaying this sandbar. This is Joseph's family, but it's inverted. This is the iceberg, the sandbar that Joseph hit that day. And if you've ever spent time reading the book of Genesis or reading the backdrop for Joseph's family, right? The generations, the Abraham, the Isaac, and the Jacob that's so famous in Jewish and Christian history, then you will recognize some of the names. But here's the thing that's really fascinating. There is so much loaded in this text that's meant to point us to this sandbar that Joseph runs aground on that day in the middle of Dothan that leads him into Egyptian slavery. You see, it says that the brothers are sitting there and they look up and they notice the original tractor trailer, the camel, coming down with a group of people, a tribe called the Ishmaelites. Now here's what's fascinating. If you look at this sandbar and you go all the way to the bottom, you'll notice sticking out on the right is a name, Ishmael. The Ishmael there is the people, that, that is the patriarch of the tribe that becomes known as the Ishmaelites. So the tribe that runs up to him hundreds of years later, that buys him, that purchases him, that take him into slavery, they are distant relatives of Joseph. But let me flip it and make it a little bit clearer because there's so much in Joseph's family tree that once... Once you start to look at it, it becomes pretty obvious that if you look at the family tree the way it's supposed to be looked, instead of this inverted inbox, what you find is that Abraham, who's the father of this family, right, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, the inside of this family tree is a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of distortion. And then if you actually start to, to do a practice called genogramming, then what you find is that there is a lot there's a lot of dysfunction. What happens to Joseph that day isn't a surprise at all. But in genogramming is an, is an art, it was invented around 1950s, and, and the purpose was to help people visualize their family's dysfunction. And so taking something like this, a typical family tree that's in the proper form, what you do is you start to draw over it. And you start to, to use certain coded kind of scribbles and lines. And what this does is it gives you an insight. So here's Joseph's family tree with a genogram applied to it. So the squiggles that you see in between the, the marriages, those, those squiggles in relationships means there's tension, that there's been some type that typically there's been almost a near break in the relationship. That there's lies, there's deceit, there's dysfunction. The actual line with the two kind of lines drawn in between, those actually point to brothers, to relationships that have been cut off. Now, what do you notice about Joseph's family tree? Is that every single brother for generations has been cut off from his other brother. Joseph's cut off from his brothers who betray him. Jacob and Esau, his father, so his father and his uncle, their relationship was cut off. You go up even further, Isaac... Joseph's grandfather, he's cut off from his Ishmael, his brother. There's so much dysfunction that's been playing out in this family that Joseph's sitting in a pit, but what really Joseph is finding himself in the midst of is his past. 
in his family's past. There has been so much dysfunction for generations. Joseph just happens to find the fruit of it that day. That what you see when you spend time processing through Joseph's family tree is that there has been themes of lying, deceit, sibling rivalry, but it borders on sibling warfare. There's been unhealthy marriages, chronic dysfunction. All of these things are the heritage for where Joseph came from. And when this text is being written, God was wanting to make sure that we noticed it. Right? It's why the Ishmaelites were told that the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, these two names that on the surface mean absolutely nothing, have everything to do with his family history. This is, he's here because of his family history. If you were to keep reading the story, which we, we won't, but if you got to verse 32, what you would find is the words they used to quote to their dad about the, the son's death. Oh, dad, you should examine this coat. That coat, by the way, was a, a gift from Jacob to Joseph because of favoritism. The reason Joseph isn't with his brothers, favoritism. That favoritism played out before. Isaac had a favorite son. Abraham had a favorite son. And that would ripple through the tension of the family. These lies. And so what do they do? They show up to their father and they present their father the coat dipped with goat's blood to fake the death of his favorite son. And you know what they say to him? They say to him the same words he said to his brother when he deceived him. They tell him to examine it. The same words that Jacob says to Esau, I mean Jacob says to Isaac, when he's trying to trick his dad to believe he's Esau. Because his dad was half blind. I mean, this even the word selection points to the dysfunction for generations. And here's why this matters. Because at the end of the day, for some of us, we've been told that the past is behind us. Growing up, right, no matter where you've come from, that, that's the past. And the past is in the past. But that's exactly not accurate. The past is not behind you. The past is in you. And sometimes if you're Joseph, you're sitting in your past in a pit, wondering how in the world you got here. That for some of us, the dysfunction that we keep finding ourselves in the midst of, the relational strife and struggle in the midst of our marriage or in our relationships with siblings or family members or the same patterns of dysfunction we deal with conflict, those things aren't something new to us. They've been things we've been imitating or inheriting from generations behind us. And if we're going to beat the odds, then we have to take a step back and investigate where we've come from. Because the past is not behind us, it's in us. And we all imitate, and we have all inherited distinctive traits that have come from the generations before us. And oftentimes, the biggest barrier to a breakthrough in our present is our willingness to look to our past. And this is why I would encourage you. This is, I said I was going to give you a couple tools today. Here's the first tool I've made available. It's free. Um, you can download it at this website. Set aside 30 minutes this week to do it. Um, but this, this tool will guide you with questions and a large sheet to process through your own family history and background. Because as dysfunctional as that may have looked, we all have it. 
And there's something powerful about seeing the patterns visually where you've come from. To be able to start to have some insights. Because those insights are the key to you starting to do things differently. That unless you see it, unless you realize it, you're going to keep repeating the past. You cannot beat something that you do not see. That ship ran up onto that ground because they didn't see what was underneath the surface. And the genogram is an exercise that allows us to see underneath the surface, to see those invisible rocks that have the ability to derail us. And it doesn't matter what age you are. You may be in college, you may be a high schooler, or you may be someone at an empty nest stage. All of us have these invisible rocks and sandbars underneath the surface. And the, the earlier we deal with them, the better it is for us in our future. That when we have the insight and we realize where we've come from, we can then begin to intentionally take steps to move towards our preferred future. And I recognize that maybe for some of you, this genogram may be a little overwhelming. You're like, this is not a counseling session and I am not prepared for it. Okay? So I'm not asking you to do it with your neighbor sitting beside you. Okay? But let me give you something a little bit easier if you want to kind of wade into the waters. Um, these are ten words. You just jot down just three or four or five of them. These ten words can be really insightful and even mining out some of your past. And here's the question I have as you look for these words. How did your family talk, deal with, and navigate these different topics? How did your family do conflict? Passive-aggressive? Aggressive? Assertive? Or did conflict get swept under a rug? The rug got beaten into the ground and then concrete was poured on top of that rug so no one would see it? Is that how conflict was dealt with? Or did somebody in the family blow up and then everyone else would just shrink back and nothing was ever resolved? It was just fear that used to dominate the house? What's the pattern that you grew up with? When you were 8 to 12 years old, what did you see? How were emotions dealt with? Were you weak because you had them? Were you expected to show them? Is that how you got attention? What was the idea of marriage? Sex? Like all these different topics. Empathy, forgiveness. How did your family handle these topics? What did you learn? What did you see? What? Because if we're not careful, we repeat our past. And until we're willing to unsurface where we've come from, it's really hard to beat our past. So this is a little bit of a simpler exercise for you. But I would encourage you this week, set aside 30 minutes and do one of these two. The insights you gain will give you the, the starting point for what can be freedom, for what can be a better future for you and your relationships. And the reason I'm willing to navigate this is because for so many of us, the emotional dysfunction, the unhealth that we have relationally, the, the places that we find ourselves, the struggles that we have in our life, so much of it's rooted in our past. And I was just fortunate enough to grow up with a front row seat to this, where there was none of this stuff was being hidden because it was so dysfunctional it was on display. That my mom was an incredible woman. She came out of dysfunction beyond dysfunction. She was the first one in her family for generations to actually raise her own kids. Everyone before, the parents would have kids, often way too young, and the grandparents would step in and raise while the kids checked out. And that had happened for generations. 
And then my mom has me when she's 18 years old. She doesn't graduate high school. Um, and she does something radical. She decides she's going to raise me as her son, not abandon me with a family member. And I remember growing up as we had a front row seat to the dysfunction in our family and all the baggage that came with our family. My mom would frequently say to us these kind of sentiments that, you know what, the past is not your fault, Chris, but your future is. You don't choose where you come from, son, but you do choose where you go. And that would be this mantra that we heard regularly growing up because everyone else in our family did life differently, made different choices than what my mom was trying to make. Everyone else on the other side of their family leaned on blame. They could blame their dysfunction in parenting on their parents abandoning them. And what my mom realized was that blame is a barrier. As Andy Stanley, kind of a mentor for me, has said that blame is the barrier for breakthrough from your past. That you can't break through your past if you're committed to blaming someone else. And this was a critical thing that fortunately growing up I got exposed to. That I got taught. And that, was, that played out in front of me. And that for you and I, if we're going to see a better future, then we have to make intentional choices that move us towards that better future. And away from the past that we've been stuck in for so long. And for some of us, you're really fortunate. You do the genogram. You do this exercise. And you find there's only a few things. For others of you, you may find like Joseph that your dysfunction that you're struggling with in your adult life or in your, your young kind of young adult life or even your late teen life, that it's been going on for generations and no one, no one has taken a stand to say there's something better. Which is why the story of Joseph is, Joseph is so incredible because Joseph spends the next 13 to 15 years of his life in slavery, processing, navigating prison to Eventually, this drastic turn of events where he's in charge, and lo and behold, his brothers show up to him. They don't recognize him, and he's in control. And he could have done what they had done all along. The sibling rivalry, the deceit, the lies, the setups, the breakdowns, the teardowns, the destroying each other. But Joseph does something different. In Genesis 50, 20, he, he gives them an insight and he gives us an insight to how he's looked back over the course of his life. He says that, look, you, what you intended for evil, God used for good. That what you thought would harm me, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, what happens is that Joseph finds himself ruling and leading high up in the government structure in Egypt during the midst of a famine, and an entire nation is saved because of his leadership, because of his willingness to let go of his past, and to believe that God can still do in him an incredible future in spite of his circumstances, in spite of where he's come from. Last week, I had to step out for a few days in the course of midweek um, because my grandmother passed away like kind of drastically last, last uh, week. And uh, kind of unexpected, though she'd been sick, bedridden for a couple years. Um, so my mom calls me to tell me, hey, um, grandma's passed away. And so I get on the plane and I fly to North Carolina where she was living. And um, sitting in her funeral, um, I was one of the pallbearers. And so I'm sitting on this side of the church and I'm looking on this side of the church. And all of this is flooding to my mind. Because sitting on the right side of the church is a vast majority of the family, 99.9% .9 of the family. And all of that family, 
I'm sitting there and it hits me um, that all of them had, none of them had graduated high school. Um, all of them had been in prison. All of them at some point were still or have in the past dealt with substance abuse, heroin addiction, crack addiction, that we've lost family members because of those choices and decisions, that alcohol had ravaged my family and that addiction, and that there had been unspeakable things done to people on that row and had been done by those people to other people in our family on that row. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all of this devastation that's now three generations down. And I'm looking at my mom. And then it, it turns to me. You see, what was sad about my grandmother's funeral was how unsad it was for our family. My daughter has never met my grandmother. The choices that my grandmother made, the people that were around her, even in her dying years, were the type of people that I could not, as a good parent, expose my daughter to. That there were devastatingly tragic things that that family practiced regularly that there was no way I could take my five-year-old daughter into that. And I'm sitting there and this wave of grief hits me, but then this wave of gratitude hits me that my daughter will never, ever know this, this present moment that I'm sitting in. The tragedy that I feel of how unsad it is for me and that this funeral of my grandmother, for crying out loud, my daughter will never know that. You see, in my daughter's world, when I grew up and we had Grandparents Day, right, this, you know, this weird thing that schools would be like, all right, today we're going to talk about grandparents. I had to lie or pretend they were dead because I didn't want to talk about them. My daughter, her biggest hero in life is her grandparents. She loves them. She will willingly trade us to get them. I'm not joking. I don't say that to be sincere about my mom. I just mean that statement. She would trade me to get her. And I love every single part of that. Because I didn't have that growing up. And sitting there, kind of through the service, I have this wave of gratitude that for my daughter, the life that she will experience will look so radically different than the life that I did. And the reason my life changed is because on August 7, 2001, I stepped into the Christian faith and God transformed my life. That I realized that there was a greater narrative of the Christian faith that even Joseph points to that there is a power that's greater than our genes that we come from. That there is a hope that is greater than the hurt and the harm that we've experienced. That there is something more significant than the struggles in our past and that there is a future greater than our family's past. And that that day, I was overwhelmed with the gratitude of being plucked out of just this family, but being allowed to enter into God's family too. And that there is a hope and there is a strength and there is an encouragement and there is a grace that's present for us that He makes available. That no matter how, as you investigate your past, as you look in and have these insights of where you've come from, that no matter how big or overwhelming or, or just intimidating the past struggles have been for your family, I'm telling you that there is one greater than that. There, there is hope stronger than the generations of hurt and harm that you and I have experienced. And that we can all, like Joseph, experience 
not just a repeat of our past, but that we can beat our past and move into the future that God desired us to have in the first place. And if we're willing to look back and investigate our past and begin to intentionally make choices to move us towards that preferred future, then what we'll find is that there is a God in the midst of all of that that gives strength even in those moments where we think we're not strong enough to do it. And if we're willing to lean into that, that's how you and I can beat the odds. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the power that you bring, of the hope that you have, of a story of a man who is considered one of the greats in our faith, and yet who comes from a heritage of brokenness. And that all of us in this room, no matter who we are, no matter what we've come from, we all carry the patterns of our past. And some of us, we're fortunate and we have good, solid patterns. But for some of us, God, we, we limp in our present life. Because of what we were exposed to, because of what was done to us, because of the patterns that we have imitated and the tendencies that we have inherited and so give us courage today to look back, not to repeat it, but to beat it. And inspire us even now that no matter how great the struggle, no matter how significant the storyline of our family's past, that there is a beauty and a hope that you can bring, Jesus, that brings freshness, that brings a rewrite and an edit and a better chapter and a better future and thank you as we sing even earlier today that there is a greater name there is a greater hope there is a greater power than our past and it's in your name Jesus the name that does bring that hope the name that does bring that freedom that we pray